on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. I was blown away that there was now a genre, I guess is the right way to say, or, or a title for this kind of music. It wasn't just soft rock. It was cooler than soft rock. This is yacht rock, right? Like This is like you're envisioning hanging out in the summer in the Hamptons on a boat blasting Christopher Cross. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Welcome to episode number 169 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get rolling for this episode of the podcast, I just want to take a moment to thank my guest from the last episode, Brian Ortega, host of Concierge Confidential, a new podcast that takes you behind the curtain and explores every aspect of the Vegas lifestyle. We talked about Brian's past life as a concierge at a major Vegas property, what inspired him to launch his podcast, and he stepped back into the concierge role to share a few of his favorite Vegas spots. If you haven't listened as of yet, pop into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out Concierge Confidential on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Okay. I need you to do something for me here. Close your eyes and imagine it's the early 1980s. You're sitting in the captain's chair, cruising the Atlantic shores of the Hamptons with your friends. The bikinis are fluorescent, the polo shirt collars are popped, and boat shoes are being worn sockless. Your vessel's sound system is pumping out the soft rock vibes of the likes of Toto, Kenny Loggins, Michael McDonald, Christopher Cross, and Air Supply. That, my friends, is Yacht Rock. And that is what Las Vegas headliners, the Docksiders, are all about. Joining me for this episode of the podcast is the founder of the Docksiders, Kevin Sucker. Kevin is a longtime music industry vet who's worked with some pretty heavy hitters in the business, including the likes of Stevie Wonder, Train, Michelle Branch, Gwen Stefani, and David Foster. Back in 2017, after an almost 20-year absence from performing, Kevin had an idea for a show that celebrated the music known as Yacht Rock. He put together a band, hit the stage, and after touring the show around his home area in the Midwest, he connected with one of his longtime idols who told him, you have to bring this show to Vegas. And the rest, as they say, is history. In addition to all the Docksiders lore and history, Kevin and I had a great in-depth conversation about the current state of the music industry and what it might hold in the future. Kevin also shared the story of his first ever visit to my hometown of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada back in the early 1990s and the uniquely Winnipeg experience he got to be a part of. Please enjoy my conversation with Kevin Sucker of the Docksiders. I grew up just north of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, in a little city. Well, it's not so little, but it's 
It's a northern suburb called Mequon, uh, about 20 minutes north of the city, a really beautiful community, um, very, uh, very uh, manicured lawns and and uh, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a child of a, of a very middle class family. Uh, my father worked very, very hard uh, and was the primary breadwinner. My mom was a stay at home mother and uh, I couldn't have had uh, two better parents. Uh, I'm very fortunate that they're still with us. And uh, they are my biggest fans and the biggest supporters. And as a kid that uh, had a passion for the arts, uh, I started in musical theater and that progressed through, um, you know, learning how to play keyboards and guitar and writing songs. And that's what's taken me uh, in my career. But my parents still to this day, uh, very, uh, my dad's 81, my mom's 77. And uh, they wouldn't, they won't miss a show as long as, uh, as long as it's, uh, they can get there relatively easy. They still come. I don't know an awful lot about Milwaukee and Wisconsin and that area. Is that a big music city? Are there a lot of bands and a lot of artists that have come out of Milwaukee? Does it have a really big musical scene? It, it, I think for the city, it, it has a, a pretty significant scene. Um, it always felt like we were, you know, the forgotten about musical community. I remember being a young kid trying to get recognized and trying to, you know, make a name for myself in, in town. And it felt like bands in Chicago, which was about a hundred miles away and bands in Minneapolis, which was about five hours away, you know, obviously with Prince and, and all the other great music that came out of the twin cities. Um, we were like sandwiched in between and it kind of, you know, it, it was, it was almost like the same thing when, when big tours would be out on the road, Milwaukee would oftentimes get skipped because it wasn't really a major market like Minneapolis was or like Chicago was. So a lot of times they would say, why are we going to play, uh, you know, a hundred miles away when, you know, maybe half the audience would be coming from Milwaukee anyways. Um, so it was an interesting community. Um, uh, and, and I've lived, uh, what I can comment about Milwaukee is obviously I lived a large portion of my life there. Um, and I lived in LA for a while. I lived in New York for a while. And now I've lived in Vegas. And looking back on all the places that I've lived, Milwaukee was definitely the most challenging musical community uh, that I've ever been a part of. Um, not a lot of support between musicians. Uh, Vegas, we can get to that a little bit later, is very, very different. Um, in, in a very strange way, you'd think Milwaukee being like kind of a smaller town, maybe the community would be a little bit more tight knit, but it, it really, it, it really wasn't. And, and also I think I came up in an era where live music was, was everything in the world, like in the, in the eighties, uh, and in the, even in the nineties for the most part, but then like the, the late nineties happened and the DJs became more popular than kids like sitting in their rooms, woodshedding and learning how to play guitars. Um, and live music venues in Milwaukee started going away and it became much more difficult to, uh, to gig if you weren't known. And thankfully at that point in time, I'd made a name for myself outside of Milwaukee, which then helped kind of the whole Milwaukee uh, recognition thing be a little different. I'm somewhat familiar with that dynamic of the smaller city getting skipped over for the big tours. I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And so 
I, it was always heartbreaking whenever the the tours would come through and the bands would come through. And I mean, it's always hilarious enough when when a band says they're doing a Canadian tour, and by Canadian tour they mean Vancouver and Toronto. That's really that's the only places they're going. <laughs> right. And and it was always kind of heartbreaking when these bands would skip Winnipeg. And I think Winnipeg is similar to Milwaukee in that it had that. The, almost like an underground music scene. I mean, there were a lot of big bands in the 60s and 70s that came out of Winnipeg with the likes sure. of the Guess Who and BTO yep. and bands like that. But I think the big musical scene in Canada was really Toronto and Vancouver. Sure. So it's it's very similar. It sounds very similar dynamic to what I sort of grew up dealing with. Very cool. It was, it was the first city I ever visited when uh, when I got to Canada for the first time was Winnipeg. I'm sorry. I, I apologize for that. <laughs> You're sounding like a true Canadian, always apologizing. <laughs> you don't have to with me. <laughs> I have a crazy story about Winnipeg. Our car was towed. We were very young, and we were playing in Grand Forks, North Dakota on tour, and we had a day off. Actually, it was a show day, but we thought we had enough time to get from Grand Forks, North Dakota to Winnipeg and back and still play a show that night, and it would have worked out had our van not been towed we parked on some street by a mall and when we came out there were a hundred cars that were gone and ours was one of them so we had to try to figure out how to get it back and who had three hundred dollars to get it out of the pound it was it was a nightmare that story could not be more winnipeg if it tried to be quite honestly i don't know if you can actually call yourself a winnipegger if you haven't had your your vehicle towed out of one of those tollway zones. Total side story, not related to anything here with that, other than a Winnipeg story. I know so many people that would park downtown areas in Winnipeg and all this stuff, and it was like 3.30 to 5.30, it was no parking on any of the downtown streets. And, And there were parking lots where there were tow trucks that would stage and they would be the drivers would be sitting there looking at their watches, waiting. And when that thing hit three thirty, boom, they were out taking away cars. <laughs> I think I was I think I was nineteen years old, uh, and we we were there, and we we decided we we wanted to experience Canada. None of us had been, and we were like, what should we do that could be Canadian? Well, we got to try some Canadian food. That was the, the the thing that we thought. So we drove to some giant shopping mall. It was like a, you know, this was 1991. Um, and literally, we parked with hundreds of cars on the street. And when we came out, hundreds of cars were gone. I mean, it was un- <laughs> including ours. It was, it was my, we were like, did we park here? I think, <laughs> yeah, we did park on this street. And then it was like, could the car have been towed? And sure enough, we looked at a sign. And I think you were right. Something between 3.30 and 5.30, they were like, we will tow the heck out of your car. And we were, and then we were like, I think we were four hours away. It was so, it was a long drive. It was not close. And we were late getting to the gig because we had to get a cab to take us to the pound and none of us had cash. We didn't, we weren't making enough money back then to even ha- have an extra three, 400 bucks to try to get the car out. But that was my Winnipeg experience. <laughs> I'm going to get you a certificate making you an honorary Winnipegger for having your car towed during it. a, during rush hour I love it. downtown. It's just that, that just, that happens. So fun. That's great. <laughs> That's Thank amazing. you. <laughs> Um, did you study music in university or, or college? Did you go to college or university for music? I didn't. Uh, I'm completely self-taught um, musician. I, I'm an, I'm an instinct, instinct person. 
And I know a, a bunch of people like me. Like I thought I was odd growing up. I heard music very differently than a lot of other people. Um, you know, I, I just heard Lionel Richie uh, give uh, uh, an answer about how to tell if you're a songwriter. And he started pounding on his leg, just a, a, a four count. And he said, if you just hear the slap on my leg, you're not a songwriter. But if you can hear a melody or a lyric or a rhythmic progression uh, along with what you're hearing on that, just that four beat pulse, you're a songwriter. And I, um, my parents used to tell me um, that I would, they would put on records when I would be two, three, four years old, and I would stand like face to face with the bookshelf speakers. And I would shake back and forth or I would move to the beat. But um, they were like, it was, they, they would say I was transfixed on the speaker. And I remember uh, being seven or eight years old and my grandparents lived in New York and I would visit them in the holidays and in summers. And um, uh, Tony Orlando's, a single tie yellow ribbon round the old oak tree was a huge, huge favorite song of mine. And I remember my grandfather um, telling me, like, I have to stop playing. Kevin, you have to stop playing the record because you are wearing out the needle. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but like a hundred percent self-taught. And, and, and to this day, um, I remember going through some music theory classes in high school and I and I had such a chord vocabulary just be, being a writer, like, and I understood inversions and musical changes and key changes and time signatures. I just understood them. But the theory class put put the definitions and the names to what I had learned by just studying the radio. Uh, in my shows, I talk about uh, Casey Kasem's Top Forty was my master class, and I used to sit at 10 years old and write uh, all 40 songs uh, in spiral notebooks uh, from week to week. And then in my 10 year old brain, I would try to figure out why certain songs would move up the chart or down the charts. And I didn't, I don't know if I was right or wrong or, or what it is, but it, but, but I, I did try to take some formal uh, piano lessons. And I remember the teacher starting with like twinkle, twinkle, little star, and I was like, listen, lady, I want to play Jump by Van Halen. Like, this is like, <laughs> this is not interesting at all to me. Like, if you can't teach me how to boogie woogie and like solo and improvise in some rock and roll progression, like, I'm not interested. And my dad still to this day would be like, they still owe me a rebate of like $150 because you didn't go to another lesson after that. I was like, that was, that was me. So, um, yeah, very, very, uh, I, I have an, a unique ability to hear things. Um, there's, there's a movie that Mark Ruffalo is in called begin again. It's a, it's a movie about music and a writer and he's like a failing record executive. And he's, there's this one scene where he's in a bar and they're listening to this young woman play the other star in the movie. I can't remember her name right now, but he's looking up on the stage and he sees all the other instruments being played by, you know, by nobody but he's hearing the production of the record and how to make things go. That's the blessing and the curse that I have. Um, I, I listen to music just very differently than a lot of people. Um, it seems that the music of my youth is really the only music that can take me back 
to a place. Uh, I, I think, you know, anything past the age of 20, I get too analytical and I'm, I listen very, um, very detailed, but very analytically. I'm, I'm always deconstructing. I'm always, um, figuring out how it was recorded. I'm always figuring out, you know, like what could have made that sound. And it's, it, it my, my wife who we've, we've been together for almost 22 years. Uh, my wife ha- has learned that I'm just a, it's it's almost the same thing too with movies. Like I sit from a production standpoint, and I'm I'm thinking about the editing, and I'm thinking about the sound design, and I'm thinking about all the the pieces that kind of put it all together. So, um, I, I I do wish that I would have studied. I do wish I would have, uh, you know, college level, university level, um, put the time and the effort in because that was really the time to do it now isn't for me at this age that I'm at now. But um, those developmental years, I think, would have made me a different kind of musician than I wound up being. Uh, I'm not I'm not hating on what I what I am. But I just, you know, I there are certain other musicians that I envy because they have a different level of education. And their skill set is definitely different than what mine is. But that's what makes us unique, right? That's what makes musicians different from from one another and and uh, complementary in the same. I completely understand what you're saying because I think I mean I have a certain degree of that myself in that. Um, I, I mean, I grew up with my my dad was a musician. He played guitar and he could sing. I cannot do either of those things, despite his many attempts to teach me. He didn't have the patience. I didn't have the talent. That together was just a very bad combination, but I still, I I grew up listening to all of his albums and all of my mom's albums and they had very different musical tastes. My dad was much more into rock and, and the Beatles and the stones and Zeppelin. And my mom was into more pop stuff. She had the village people and Laura Branigan and, and lover boy and that, that side of stuff on, on her record collection. So I was very similar in that I could listen to a, a, an album or listen to a song and I could hear those individual tracks and I could pick out the keyboards and the drums and the background vocals and the, the guitar and the rhythm guitar and the lead guitar. And and so I, the same thing, I can listen to a song and, and be somewhat analytical. And then my years in radio, 20 years in radio. Also, I now have that on the radio side of things. My wife gets so pissed off listening to the radio in the car with me because I'm that guy that when we're driving, I turn down the music, but then I turn up all the station IDs and the commercials and the announcers drives her up the wall. I get it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. Did did your parents' musical tastes shape your music uh, taste as well? Absolutely. If you were to go through my Apple music library, there is everything in there literally from ABBA to Zeppelin with several Broadway musicals thrown in just for I was going to guess kicks. it's probably very similar to mine because when you mentioned my dad was a little bit more uh, R&B, soul, and Motown. And my mom was more like the show tunes and Barry Manilow and the pop stuff. Uh, so my same sort of thing. If you look through my Apple playlist, it would be you know, just uh, a smorgasbord of, of, of music of different genres and, and styles. That's cool. It's, 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 I think that's, as I've gone through life, that's a question I like ask, asking uh, friends and people that I meet about how their musical tastes developed. Um, and a lot of it, I think, comes from parents. I have three children, so I'm very conscious of what I play for them. 
with the hopes that maybe, um, you know, some of the, what we consider without sounding too much like my dad did when I was a teenager, what is that junk you're listening to? Uh, but I feel like that now, you know, sometimes I'll be blunt, you know, the new music I'm not, I, I stay very current. Like I listen to what's going on, but man, is it, it's not music in my opinion. It's, it's really, it's really watered down stuff. It's not, mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the next 20 years, that's for sure. I, I know there there is some hope for the younger generations because I spent many – I say, again, we're sounding like our dads and our grandpas. There's some hope for the younger generations. Um, my I spent several years working for a classic rock station, and the number of listeners that we had that were 18 to 24-year-olds, even under 18 – that loved listening to the radio station and their comment always was, well, I love listening to this stuff because it's real music. There's, there's actual instruments being played. I love listening to the stones. I love listening to the Beatles. I love listening to Led Zeppelin because there's actual music happening as opposed to just noise again, at the risk of sounding like our grandparents. (laughs) It's really, really good. I, during the pandemic, I was hired to be the executive director of a non-commercial radio station. And it was, I'd never worked in radio before. Um, And it was an NPR affiliate, a national public radio affiliate here in the States. And it, um, you know, the, the, the kind of music that was played was the music that made me want to, my skin crawl. Like it was, you know, avant-garde, uh, very, you know, non-thematic. Um, you know, I'm I'm a trained producer, I'm a professional producer that has a, a set of feelings and instincts of the way that music should sound. Not that I my rules are the only rules that apply, but it's it 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 rubbed my taste. I guess that's the best way to put it. So it was really hard couple years listening to the station music every day. Just, you know, I would do my job running, you know, 50 employees and making sure that, uh, you know, the, the budgets made sense and the board was happy and all that sort of stuff. But holy cow, I, when, when it came time to not listen to the jocks, obviously doing their, their air checks and stuff was one thing, but, Listening to the music, I was like, wow, am I at the wrong station? If someone had to say, do you like the the kind of music you play? I was like, oh, my gosh, this music drives me crazy. I feel like between the two of us at this moment, we should go out and look for kids to yell at to get off of our lawns after this conversation. I am so down. (laughs) It would be so much fun. Hey, what are you doing? Get off my lawn. Get off my lawn. Get out of here. (laughs) <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, your career is, I mean, very long and, and, and storied, and you've had the opportunity to work with a, a, a lot of big names, writing and, and producing. How did you get into that world of producing music? Um, I, again, the radio was my masterclass. You know, I grew up analyzing songs without knowing that's what I was doing. And, and, and I, I say in the opening of the Docksider show, like, you know, there's a little video montage about my upbringing because that's basically what the, the show of the Docksiders is. It's, it's based in my, my life. And, um, I, I, I was always just mesmerized at 
sonic wizardry, I like to call it, and how did records sound the way they did? And and I was you know because I grew up in musical theater, and I had such a background in the pop world growing up. Melody was very very important. Melody and harmony, um, very important. Structure very important. Uh, and I learned from a really young age. I didn't realize I was learning what I was learning, but. When I got to be uh, in my early teens, like 13, 14, and I started writing music, um, you know, I would start trying to emulate songs that I loved. And uh, it, it served kind of as like the blueprint of how to become a producer. Now, I have tapes and I have recordings and my parents have stuff. They've saved everything that if I go back and listen, I cringe. It's just... Like, I've tried to be kind to myself. Like, if I were sitting next to the 13-year-old Kevin, I would be kind and I would say, just keep at it. Um, I didn't have any access to YouTube. We The internet wasn't available. I, You know, there's so many resources now. Mm-hmm. And, the rec- and, 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 like, my first recording studio gig, I was learning how to to engineer the way that old records were made. I was an analog console. You had to worry about bringing a sound uh, wave in in a certain way that wasn't going to be distorting or finding creative use for harmonic distortion that the tubes would then help create uh, in the sonic process of figuring out how to make a record sound the way that it did. And then we recorded to to two-inch tape. So I was working a big two-inch tape machine and trying to really figure out how to make recordings sound like my heroes records, the records that sounded very different. And I, I just, uh, I, I remember some older guys that I used to work with when I was maybe 16 years old. I was playing in some bands with some older cats in Milwaukee, and I remember them saying, "Sucker's recordings sound like." major records and i always felt like wow that was really kind that they said that and and i always would strive to make something sound as great as it could and i remember playing even like cassette recordings i had after i got out of the the studio i had this little eight track cassette recorder and i remember cds were just about coming out digital recording wasn't wasn't happening yet it wasn't affordable for somebody to have a home studio, right? You still needed to spend money and go to a recording studio. And um, I remember some older guys, you know, asking me like, where did you record this? And I was like, in my parents' basement. And they were like, they couldn't believe that I made the music in my parents' basement. And this is the day where you like, you had eight tracks. So you'd record three tracks and then you'd bounce them down to one track and it would free up four more tracks. So you could keep layering things. And if you were smart about your arrangements, you would make it so it you know it wasn't like just a bunch of noise on top of noise on top of noise. So I don't know. It was just a. I I, I always say that I just had this instinct. Um, I have an instinct when I'm in a recording studio, and I know exactly. Um, like when I produce an album, and and someone hires me to 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 bring my skill set to the game. Um, I I have an instinct, and and my job is to coach an artist and bring the best that I can out of an artist and also be able to talk the talk of what a label's looking for and deliver something that could be commercially viable. And I know that if I get to the point where I get goosebumps, I'm probably in the ballpark of feeling 
of hopeful that other people will also feel that way. Um, but that's what's interesting about music, right? It's very subjective. Things that turn me on might not turn someone else on. So it's always been a um, David Foster, who I've been very, very fortunate to to work with a number of times in my career. Uh, he, uh, and I take this very, very literally. But during his shows, if you've ever been to one of the Foster and Friends shows, um, he, he he says something of the fact of, I, I only needed to be right a handful of times. And it's very mm-hmm. true. Like, you don't have to be yeah. right all the time. Um, <laughs> I think as a young person, you're thinking, you know, to be validated and you want people to respect what you do or you want people to pat you on the back and say, wow, what you do is really good. Um, and as I've gotten older, it's it's really – it was never about that for me. It was always about just doing the best I could within myself and challenging myself to always strive to be – better from one record to the next or even one song to the next song um we're working on an album right now with the Docksiders. it's our first album and i believe i take my my past with me so everything i've done to this point in time will help you know make this Docksiders record very special i think um i'm co-producing it with an, an another amazing uh, producer, uh, and that's something I wouldn't have done in in my younger days either, because I felt so passionate about having a vision. To me now, it's all about just doing the right thing and what's best for the project, um, and realizing that you know, like you guys in Canada, your your hockey team when, when you got two, when you got two guys in the penalty box, you're at a disadvantage on the other team's offense, right? You might not have the full the full uh, bevy of weapons that you have. I feel like the same thing now as I've gotten older. Um, you know, together we can make something phenomenal. Um, and I definitely want to put people in the room that have uh, like-minded ideas and creative uh, thought processes as well. It's interesting the the point about <clears throat> excuse me about um, people have that need particularly people that seem to be getting into the industry now have that need to have that instant success. They got to capture lightning in a bottle right away. And I remember having a conversation with somebody about this eons ago, talking about some of the, the musicians of the seventies and the eighties and artists, like for example, like a Bruce Springsteen, it took him four albums to get a, a, a hit to become popular. There isn't an act around today that would be given four albums or four opportunities to have a, 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 a chance to become successful. They get that one single. And if that one single goes to the radio and goes, that's it. They're done. They're it's, gone. It's They're tossed aside. Done. It's, it's, it's on to the next thing. It's, it's, it's really kind of sad. It's very sad because you don't know what we don't know what we're missing. We don't, we're, we're not getting, we're not getting artists that could be career artists because the industry won't support it any longer. Interesting point about Bruce Springsteen that you brought up is he got into a really, really big legal battle with Columbia back in the day, and they f- stopped. He stopped recording, and that's where he went out on the road. And he said, "Fine, I'm not going to record, but I'm going to play my music." And he went on the road for years, I believe, and toured and toured and toured, and that's how he became the Bruce Springsteen that we know now that I go and see him play a four hour set 
at 70 plus years old and you're like this guy is he's a machine um and he honed his craft right it's a skill it's a it, it's no different in my opinion than a doctor or a lawyer where they're in practice musicians are in practice all the time the shows are also practice right you hope that you've practiced enough to get to the point where when you're showing it to people that the practice pays off and that your you know your show is is memorable but at the end of the day i learn i learn more from the shows than i do in any sort of rehearsals right like rehearsals tend to be just kind of the moments where you're putting placeholders in but the show is where you learn how the audience responds and the audience reacts but you're 100% right back to the point of uh, i i sat at columbia records um in in the late 90s and i got in an argument it probably was not my best moment because i was there with my manager who was shopping me to the label and they had just signed this Sean Mullins guy he had this rockabye song i don't know if you remember I've, it I've, I'm very, very familiar. I worked in Top 40 Radio in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I am more than – I could probably recite every lyric from that song right now. So uh, <laughs> my point is that song was the closest to the music that I was doing because if you remember the 90s like I do, I, I hate the decade of music. It's my least favorite decade of music personally. However – because I was still writing pop music and it was such an anti-pop decade, right? It was not the big productions went away with the eighties. Like the, it was like the, 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 the more stripped down and the more angry you could be. And I was writing songs about love and, and hope and desire and all those sort of things that, excuse me, didn't have a place at radio. So I sat in New York city at Columbia with one of the, the main people and as we were talking about whether or not there could be a place for me at Columbia Records as an artist, um, the conversation came up of, of me saying, if Bob Dylan walked in the door right now, who was a Columbia Records artist, I was like, you guys would laugh him out of this room. I don't care what kind of writer he is. He's an American hero. He's, he's, a, he's a poet. He's an incredible songwriter, incredible lyricist. But he's a shh. Can I, can I curse? I almost swore. Uh, no, absolutely. Go ahead. Curse He's a away. shitty singer. <laughs> right? <laughs> Bob Dylan is not like a, I, I get it. Like it's, it's a different thing. Not my cup of tea. And I respect everything that he is though. Right. So, but, but you, I, my, my point was you can't convince me through any salesmanship that if Bob Dylan were sitting here in this meeting today with his manager, that you'd be throwing out a red carpet and saying, we want to sign you, not where the music industry was in 1998. And they argued with me that, of course, that they would, which I was like, okay, you guys are full of crap. And my manager was like, her jaw was open. It was like, we just ruined this opportunity, buddy. You're like, you're like contentious with these people. It was just my way of, I think I was, I was just angry at the business at, you know, in, in the nineties when I really had my opportunity as an artist, as an original music artist to get my music out in the world. The production sounded great. Some of the songs, you know, were still probably not all that wonderful, but I had to, I, I had some stuff. I had some skills that, that could have been developed, like you mentioned, you know, those, I would have been a perfect artist to have been given the opportunity to put an album out, go tour, get to work with some other people that could bring some other things out of me that I wasn't uh, open to or aware of yet, just because I didn't have that experience. And that's ultimately what I hoped for. But um, we had moderate success around the Midwest, even at radio, we had some 
some Gavin reporting stations, which are different than some of the uh, other billboard stations. But we had a we had a number one single outside of Minneapolis and an Indianapolis as well, um, and that garnered some attention, but it never really pushed the ball over the goal line for us uh, as an original artist. And um, boy, it was it was a it was a it was a massive learning experience. It was heartbreaking because it was my dream to be a performer. It was my dream to be, uh, you know, to write my own songs and, and perform. And it didn't happen for me. Um, but what I didn't realize as I was going through all of that is that my skills in the studio were excelling at the same time. And I became, uh, the guy that then people came to because the way that my records sounded, um, were, were very competitive. Um, and then once we got into the digital recording world, when people started, you know, owning Pro Tools and having studios at home or even ADATs prior to that, there were like these little VHS tapes that recorded eight channels of digital audio, which sounded amazing. Um, I would, I would then get, I'd be the guy that people would send hard drives to and tapes to, and, and I would mix the records, which is uh, my favorite part of the process. It's the process of. Uh, just kind of gluing everything together and, and putting its everything in its final place for people to hear it. I love the idea that a record exec in the late nineties would 100% say that, yes, if Bob Dylan walked in here, we'd sign him. No question. Cause I remember when the idol shows were blowing up at that point, and that would have been early two thousands, I guess right. American idol yep. and Canadian. Well, Canadian idol was later and came after was not nearly as successful. Um, but that whole side of the shows were coming out. And I remember having a conversation with one of our local record reps at the radio station and saying, if Tom Petty, Bob Dylan and Neil Young showed up on American idol or Canadian idol, they would be on the blooper reel. They, they wouldn't even have a snowball's hope in hell of making it past the audition stages. And for anybody to say otherwise mm -hmm. is absolute 100% unadulterated bullshit. A hundred percent correct. You are Jeff. Yes. That was like a Yoda answer. hundred <laughs> percent. You are correct, Jeff. Uh, but it's so, it's so true, right? Like music became, um, watered down music became so formulaic what i think happened and they don't talk about this a ton is in the 60s in the 70s in the 80s artists drove the music business in the 90s and clearly into the 2000s into where we are now into the 2020s producers drive the music business so it's very different, right? Art is, is subjective. Art is creative. Art is, you know, art gives us different shades of gray. Art isn't just black or white. We are now in a world where the producers are so formulaic with their beats and their eight bar loops that has a melody that spans three notes with no harmonic potential whatsoever, the bridge, the glorious C section of a song is long gone, which is, it's the, it's the most shameful thing in pop music to me to get rid of what would be considered, you know, this new moment in a song that takes you to a place that then the chorus then explodes back out of to the end of a song. Like all of these, 
these structural changes and uh, that that you know I have a friend that would say radio insisted on this, and what I know is that you know radio has their formula too don't get me wrong i'm not I'm not trying to blur, but it starts in the in the in the studio it starts with a producer now that says, "I have this beat uh let's get Jessica Simpson or Christina Aguilera or Britney Spears, one of the three blonde girls." To sing on it. I, I say it all the time. I'm like, you could take any Katy Perry song, and I'm not knocking Katy Perry because I loved her show here in Vegas, one of my favorite shows I've ever seen. Um, but you could take any other female pop star right now and put it on a Katy Perry track, and it'd still be a hit. That doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to the 16-year-old that learned a business that was very different and that gave artists room to be creative, right? Like it's just a very different. I'm again. I'm not trying to shit talk artists like Katy Perry. I don't blame artists like that. I blame the business, and I blame. Um, I, I mean, we could go. We could. We could really go sideways and start talking about um, Napster and what that did to <laughs> change. The people in the suits at the record labels, but you know, let's be honest. Like, the the music industry really, really hurt itself. They have no one to blame but themselves. Um, right now, artists have all the reach in the world, uh, the same reach that any uh, rec- record label does. The only thing that I don't have access to that any uh, big record company does is the, is the airwaves, right? And and then there's a huge argument of like how much how much does radio really play anymore into deciding whether or not something's working. We've shat on the music industry enough. Let's talk about Las Vegas. (laughs) Um, How long have you been in Las Vegas? And and was it the Docksiders that brought you to Vegas? Or did you come for other other things? Yeah, so um, we moved... uh, August 8th of 2022. So we've been here a little over a year. And Tony Orlando is the reason that I'm in Las Vegas right now. So he, um, long story short, um, it was Thanksgiving during the pandemic. And I got an email from a gentleman that said, you don't know me. I'm the oldest living hit songwriter on the planet. Um, Go Google me. Here's my number. I would love to chat with you if you'd like to take a phone call. I'm looking at this guy. It's three in the morning. I'm looking this guy up online and I know the name, but I wasn't placing it. And as soon as I typed his name into Google, uh, L Russell Brown, he wrote tie yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. He wrote knock three times. He wrote come on Marianne for Frankie Valley and the four seasons. He's written some of the most classic songs in, uh, in the world. And he went on like this YouTube deep dive on Thanksgiving night. And he found the Docksiders. And he found a, a song that I produced uh, that we put out, uh, which was a remake of Andy Gibbs' I Just Want to Be Your Everything, which is our most viewed uh, video on YouTube. And he said he couldn't believe what he was hearing. Here he is, 80 years old, 81 years old, and he's going, the production's better than the original. The singer's questionably better than the original. He's like, <laughs> I He's like, I couldn't believe what I was watching. And he's like, I, I went 
and researched the Docksiders. And then I see this name of Kevin Sucker, and I found your email, and I just said, you know, he sends me this note. So I call him the next day. We have this amazing conversation. And I said, like I told you earlier, Yellow Ribbon was a song that meant so much to me at seven years old that I wore the needles out relatively quickly on my grandfather's stereo system. And and I, I, I said, I'm honored that you reached out to me and said these wonderful things. And he said, well, I wrote a song for the Bee Gees that they didn't record in 1977 because they were only recording their own music. I would like the Docksiders, if you'd be interested, I'd like you to produce a song and have the Docksiders do it. And I was like, my God, are you kidding me? Like, send it to me. <laughs> and it was literally like opening a time capsule. It, it was recorded in 77, so it sounded straight out of the 70s. Um, the demo singer wasn't all that great. And I got like I got to work on it the day that I got the song. And I started kind of deconstructing it and trying to figure out how we would do it. And I got stuck. And I asked him, I said, do you happen to have a song for a female singer? Because my wife is in the Docksiders, and she's probably hands down the best singer I've ever worked with. And I'm not saying that because I live with her, and she lets me <laughs> stay in, in the bedroom with her. But I say that because you know I've worked with some world-class musicians and singers in my life, and my wife is one of those ones that has a one-in-a-million kind of voice. Um, he sends me a song he wrote, he wrote for Patsy Cline that she didn't record. And I figured it out. The production sounded incredible. That turned into the, I would like to record Tie a Yellow Ribbon because it meant so much to me. Would you maybe introduce me to Mr. Orlando? And I'd like to see if he'd like to guest on the Docksiders version of Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. Now, it's not a Yacht Rock song, but it is in a guilty pleasures world. Um, a song that is meaningful to me and and that is kind of easy listening, soft rock uh, for many, many reasons. So he introduces me to Tony Orlando. That afternoon I had a phone call. Tony, I, I told the story to, and he said, because uh, this meant so much to you and your grandfather, um, I'm going to record on this uh, out of the, out of, the uh, of, of my love for my newfound friend Kevin Sucre. So he recorded it. I asked him to come to Milwaukee to play with us after the pandemic. And he sat in in our hometown show. We did five of his hits. He sat in. And the next morning, I was taking him to the airport. And he said, I, I can't believe what I witnessed last night. And he's like, I've been in the business 61 years. The productions you have put together, how you have created the sounds and – what we really pride ourselves in in the Docksiders is we recreate the album versions of these records. There are other yacht rock bands that go out really kitschy and wear a bunch of captain's hats and they all dress the same and, and, or they dress like they're from the seventies and they do kind of like this tongue in cheek, but we go out and we, I've assembled world-class singers and world-class musicians. And I really feel that our yacht rock project is the yacht rock project in America that people should be seeing. Um, and we've been very fortunate to be seen that way. But Tony said to me, this needs to be in Vegas. How would you like me to take you to Las Vegas? And I just said, when do we leave? <laughs> um, and it was, I'll buy, I'll buy a ticket on your flight right now. I'll go with you right now. So that was January of 2022 in March of January, uh, March of 2022, 
he and I met in, here in Vegas, and he had meetings scheduled. We had a handshake deal for our, our res, the first Yacht Rock residency in Las Vegas in March. We sold our house in July. We we did a thirty city tour in July. It was the most I, when I Jeff when I tell you it was the worst timing ever. We were trying to sell a house. We were trying to pack. We were trying to move. We we're playing thirty cities. We had like three weeks to get to Vegas and set up to open our show in September. It was nothing short of miraculous that we got through everything and sold a house and closed on the house and packed everything up and moved it. And then it was unbelievable. 2022 was unbelievable. So we've been here a year. Um, we, we, we opened it at the Rio and quickly found out that that was absolutely the wrong place for this project. Uh, and now we've moved to this uh, amazing room on Fremont street called notoriety uh, and we couldn't be happier. We play every Thursday night, which is perfect. We moved here. We were playing five nights a week and found out, like, you know, those days of Las Vegas, in my opinion, are are, are gone. And, and a lot of Ace Entertainers, um, for, for a show like ours, would, would definitely agree. Um, you know, it, it, it's – and we still like to tour. We have a really – our core business is touring the country. We did 36 cities this summer. We're going out on another tour, which is – uh, amazing for us. It's our second tour in, in one calendar year. So we're going back out in December and January again. Uh, and then we'll come back in February and open our show back up here again. The Yacht Rock thing is really, in the last few years, is one of these things that's really gone kaboom in a big way. I mean, there are radio stations all over the U.S. and Canada that are dedicated specifically to this Yacht Rock format. And I know like even Sirius XM has a specific Yacht Rock station, which I, I don't mind cruising around in the summertime listening yeah. to. It's fun to just sort of to put it on and, and listen to it. So it is, it is really something that, that has blown up. Is that what sort of inspired you to, to launch this as a, a project in addition to your, your love for that sort of genre of music? Yeah. Great question. Um, I was listening to Sirius XM in 2017 and I was, you know, I was blown away that there was now um, a genre, I guess is the right way to say, it, or or a title for this kind of music. It wasn't just soft rock. It was cooler than soft rock. This is yacht rock, right? Like this is like you're envisioning, you know, you know, hanging out in the summer in the Hamptons on a boat, you know, blasting Christopher Cross, um, and. I started listening to their playlist and I was like, wow, this is this the music's really rich. The songs are so well written. The productions are I mean, like I talk about, it's where I come from. The productions are so well thought out and sound so good and you had to be able to sing and you had to be able to play your instruments. Um and I was managing. I, I hadn't been a performer for 20 years. Once my career ended in like the 90s, I was like, I transitioned to being a producer, um, a, a writer. And then I had this knack of managing artists. I had a knack of getting artists songs on the radio and putting them in front of 20,000 people on tour and building the careers of artists and, and being the guy in the back of the room that would fold my arms, just knowing that I had a piece in helping someone else's dreams come true. And I had amazing success, sold a company in 2013, became the CEO of a, of a music company that my sister company was making a, a, a movie. And as I'm setting up my company, they needed help on the movie side. They had no 
contract experience. So I helped negotiate our position in the film. That film went on to win three Oscars. So I've had this like just amazingly charmed career um, that went in ways that I'd never, never imagined. Um, but it, it was 20 years since I had been on stage. And I said to the, an agent of this kid that I was managing, who was playing with some of the biggest girl groups on the planet, Fifth Harmony and Little Mix, and he's this huge agent over at ICM in New York. And I was like, can you tell me this concept? There, there, there seems to be a phenomenon of tribute acts that are selling tickets in theaters, like real concerts. And he was like, man, listen, it's a legitimate business right now. There's a demographic of people in age group that has money. They can spend $50 on a ticket. They can go spend $120 on a meal. And they can go out on the weekends and see something that takes them back and takes them to a place that they remember when they were growing up. And I went, wow, okay, so what do you think of this? I said, I've been listening to the Sirius XM radio station called Yacht Rock. Uh, radio and you know Christopher Cross, Kenny Loggins, Michael McDonald, Toto, Olivia Newton-John, Robbie Dupree. I mean the list goes on and on and on. Like you know Lionel Richie. There's all these sort of things. Um, and and I said I'm thinking I would be interested in maybe coming out of retirement if I could do it in the level where we were playing concerts. I don't want to go play in bars anymore. I don't want to play like seven and ten dollar cover charges where you're hoping thirty people come out. So he said, "I know who you are and the quality of work you do. I'm signing you. Go put a band together." And I hung up the call with a deal at ICM for a band that I didn't have together, but I had a concept, and that was in 2017. We played our first show April 8th of 2018. Um, we sold it out because people were just curious in our hometown of Milwaukee. Um, and then the agent had an idea of putting together a limited residency in our hometown where we were going to be playing very regularly to build up this sort of like excitement. And we played three shows. And when I mean, there were like lines out the door um, in a city that doesn't really support that any longer. Um, and then he started putting us in like this eight hour radius outside of Milwaukee. So we were playing everywhere from Detroit to Cleveland to Toledo, Chicago, St. Louis, Minneapolis. And then the pandemic happened and everything, as you know, was done. We were done playing. We had started getting this amazing momentum. Um, and we started doing really well outside of our, our hometown as well. Um, and, uh, we, we, we did what everybody else did. We tried putting together uh, Zoom recording sessions, and we tried to putting together you know, um, content that we would pre-record and send to each other and then put it up so people could stay with us throughout the pandemic. We, what was a two-week shutdown turned into two years. Um, and then coming out of that, imagine like you know, a, a newer band that was like, a year and a half old that was just getting off the ground, trying to find a Saturday night in May to play in Baltimore when every other band in the planet was also now coming out of the pandemic was like, Oh my gosh, we might've been like a, you know, number 1,265th in line for that same date. Um, But for whatever reason it worked and we did, we toured right out of the pandemic again. And, um, 
weird. I'm I'm so Jeff. Had I met you like five years ago, I was so content being a manager and being a producer. And but now having like we played fifteen thousand seats at Mohegan Sun with Tony Orlando this summer, and the video that I have and the feeling stepping out on stage as the leader of the Docksiders and as a singer, which was my dream from when I was 16 years old. It is the most full circle moment in my life. I am so humble and so grateful that I get the opportunity to do this now um, in a very different kind of way than I think I would have been at 16 years old had it happened for me. Um, We sit and we meet everybody. I will stay till they kick us out at a merch table because I want to thank every single person and they want to take photos and they want us to sign autographs. And, um, I, I'm, it's, it's, I'm floored. I'm blown away that I get the opportunity to not only travel the country, making people happy, taking them back to a simpler time of their lives. And truly our show is therapeutic. We hear it all the time. We hear it from 60 and 70 year old people that are like, you took me back to 1978 and I haven't heard songs like that. Um, and we pride ourselves. Like it, it means a lot to us. That's what we're there to do. It, and that's why I think the Dock Sider show is very different than a lot of other yacht rock acts. Um, and I've seen them all. I did my research when I put my band together. Um, uh, but you know, we, we blur the lines on purpose. My, my goal is to put on the best show we can. So Yacht Rock purists might say, oh, that song isn't Yacht Rock. And I say, I don't care. I want people to be happy. So if it fits in a certain space, soft rock, it belongs in the Docksider show. Um, I don't know if you know this, but and I know you're a very well-educated music guy, but there aren't many female singers in yacht rock. Like, if you really went like authentic, I mean, there's 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 next to none. Yeah, I couldn't off the top of my head. I couldn't think of an artist that would fall into that that sort of genre. So I, I'm going to be really bold here, and I know that they would never admit it. But Sirius XM added "Magic" by Olivia Newton-John after they heard us doing it. It was not on their playlist, but we yeah, we were doing it, and all of a sudden, "Magic" by Olivia Newton-John was on was on their playlist. Um, and but but yeah, but that that's what I mean about like the, the Docksiders. Like we we do songs by artists that would be also very well known in that era. Um, and I'm not gonna lie, like I, I worked with Olivia, and um, she was the most amazing human being, so kind, um, mind blowing. I mean, this is a, this is a woman who I had her poster on my wall, you know, as Sandy in Greece growing up. And here I am sharing a turkey sandwich with her telling my life story about her when we're working together. And, and I, she could not have been more beautiful of a human being inside and out and to, to, to get to be able to like, have those touch points with artists that I've always admired. And she was such, so kind about my wife and her interpretation of her music. That was, uh, that was amazing. Uh, Just to to hear, you know, her say like, I've heard many people do my music, but your wife is very special. And I was like, yeah, I feel the same way. So 
Um, <laughs> that's 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 what makes the Docksiders, I think, really unique. Is that we we um, we kind of there there. I don't know if you if you follow any of these like web sites. There's like this this site called Yacht or Nyat, and they've rated songs of how yachty they are or how not yachty they are. And like, there's this group of purists that are like, as you could imagine, like with any sort of, uh, you know, anything, there's guys that are like, that's not Yacht Rock and that is Yacht Rock. And so like, you know, we might get some gruff that we play things that would not be considered Yacht Rock. But at the at the end of the day, I want to say, you know, 80% of our set is is pretty straight up Yacht Rock. We, we have to get a little creative because we have a superstar female singer in the band and we have to find some songs that she can she can light up as well. You mentioned the band. You've got some pretty talented musicians and performers uh, in this band as well with some pretty, pretty deep musical pedigrees and, and that have worked with some pretty incredible acts as well. Yeah. Our sax player played uh, with uh, both Kenny Loggins and Michael McDonald. Uh, so to have him in the group as a featured artist uh, is incredible. You know, there's so many iconic sax solos that were in these songs um, and, uh, he recreates them note for note, you know, which is no, it's no easy task. Like these are, these are, you know, some of the guitar parts, like, you know, guys like Jay Graydon and Steve Lukather and cats that played on, on Steely Dan's records were notoriously, you know, the best session players in the world, you know, to be able to recreate these parts takes a, a level of skill that not everybody can play. And not going to lie, you know, when you lose a guitar player in a band like the Docksiders, you kind of go, oh, oh, like we need. It's not just like you know, dude who used to be in a band thirty years ago that can come out and sit in with us. Like the, <laughs> the, the ask is a big ask. Like you, you got to learn. You got to, you got to have that, that the the vocabulary and the technical skill to learn songs that these guys were really meticulous in creating. And um, you know, sometimes it gets a little. Uh, 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 gets a little crazy in, in, in our rehearsals. We're like, ah, it's close, but it's not right. Let's do it again. Let's figure out. Let's, we, we, we owe, that's what we owe. That's what I feel I owe by putting the Docksiders on stage. Um, it would be really easy, I guess, to go do it tongue in cheek and to be kind of like goofy about the, the, the cheesiness that some people could think Yacht Rock is. I mean, not going to lie, you know, in, in the, uh, in the 80s, you know, I was the kid that was, like, singing Air Supply privately. But, like, to my buddies, <laughs> there was no way I was going to let them know I was saying, I'm all out of love. I'm so lost without you. You know, it was, I, but but you know what I mean? Like, it was it was considered soft. And it was considered – it wasn't the hard rock stuff that that the that my friends were listening to. So um, I, we still find that now and again. So, you know, some people think it's a little cheesy, but – um, we try to we try to take the, you know, it's hard when you're from Wisconsin to take the cheese out of anything you do. Sure, being a cheesehead. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there's nothing wrong with air supply. Making love out of nothing at all is a is a legit bear of a drug. You are not lying with that one either. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> 
Um, if people want to learn more about the Docksiders, you guys are all over online. You mentioned you've got YouTube, you've got a website, you guys are on social media. Uh, how can people find you guys? We are simple to find. Everything is just the Docksiders. So www.thedocksiders.com. Great place to find all of our dates. All of our all our tour dates get put up there. Um, and because our our fan base is all in you know the fifty plus year old age range. Um, Facebook is our number one place to find any information. Instagram is also really great. We really don't play in the TikTok world and and in the we do some Twitter stuff, but Facebook seems to be where where our group wants to get their information. So between the website and and Facebook, I would say, would be the best place to find info on us. Excellent, Kevin. I could sit here and talk music with you all day long, and maybe I'll have to have you back to do it again. This would be our... <laughs> we, I think we have an idea for a new offshoot podcast. Jeff and Kevin talk music and get off our lawn. That's what it should be called. <laughs> get off our lawn with, with Jeff and Kevin. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so thank much. Thank you, my man. I hope to see you when you come to Vegas, too. I know you frequent... And when you do, please uh, please drop me a line. We'd love to have you out to the show. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at jeff at jeffdoesvegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit jeffdoesvegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production.